Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. There are all kinds of euphemisms for fat bodies. They capture and obscure a persistent social discomfort and prejudice that appears across fields and settings from pop culture to airlines to medicine and beyond. Weight is also a marker for constant abuse online and offline. When it comes to weight, we have normalized prejudice, moral panic, and shaming, even as we have made such treatments socially unacceptable in relation to other markers. Where does the pathologizing of fat bodies come from? Who benefits from it and at whose expense? And how can we do better? We explore those questions and others as we ask, how should we think about fat bodies? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Mae Friedman, professor in the School of Social Work at Toronto Metropolitan University and the author of several books, among them the recently released co-edited volume, Fat Studies in Canada, Remapping the Field. Let's start with an assessment of the cultural and political moment we're in uh, leading into the broader discussion. In 2015, you published an article titled Mother Blame, Fat Shame, and Moral Panic about obesity and child welfare. And I found that the fat shame and moral panic angles are really important. I want to focus on shame and moral panic here since then. It's been nine years since then. Are we witnessing a sort of general cultural rise in either or each of these? I mean, definitely. I think we are in a time of heightened moral panic and a heightened expectation of self-regulation. I think we certainly saw that around COVID, this assumption that to keep yourself well and whole, you have to assume personal responsibility and you get asked to do things that are impossible. So then when terrible things happen, as they do in everybody's lifetime, um, it's because you fell short. It's because you screwed up. It's not because that's just sort of tragedy is baked into the model of human living. And I think fat bodies for me are the exemplar of that, but I think they're part of a bigger picture of a kind of neoliberal adherence to self-regulation that says that we have to do everything right. Right. And and it seems to me there's a broader enabling of these communities around which moral panic uh, is is based. And I think of anti-trans folks, anti-trans extremists, and we're witnessing a, an extraordinary moment of anti-trans hate and violence. And I, I look around and think, okay, well, We've always had hate. We've always had violence. There's something particularly insidious about this moment. And I looked at the internet and think, oh, well, the internet sure seems to be making things worse in part because it amplifies, but in part because it networks and connects these folks. I mean, do you think the internet in general and, and social media in particular has played a role in, in exacerbating this moral panic and judgment? I think it both has and has done its opposite. And I think that's kind of always what I think about the internet that I think that as a technology, it's given us the capacity for heightened human connection in ways that are literally life-saving. You know, to your example, if you're a trans person in a small community and you don't know that there's anybody else like you, the fact that you can log on and find people like you without necessarily coming out with your body right away, that could literally save your life, right? Um, I think many of the fat activists or nascent fat activist students who come to me talk about getting their start in fact at fat activism through social media, being able to see people telling a different story about their body than the story that had been told by medicine, by school, by parents, 
by, uh, you know, media, by advertising, right? And so I think that on the one hand, I think that the internet has given us this capacity to connect around shared identity in ways that have made things better. And I think that the flip is there too, that there's always this backlash, that the more visible you become, the more of a target is painted on your back. I want to, I want to, focus in on, on fatness now and try to understand and define it because uh, I think we, we all have conceptions of what that means in our heads. We all have words for it and approaches to it. But I want to try to establish sort of, sort of basic common terms of reference for, for this discussion. How would we define fatness? And, and, and then as a next step, what shapes our perception of it? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I think what I love about the word fat, as opposed to some of the other words that get used, is that it's a really elastic signifier. So what I may perceive as fat might be different than what you think of as fat. Fat researchers, we talk sometimes about how often we will ask people to self-select into the work that we do. We'll say anyone who self-identifies as fat, and then we're shocked by some of the folks who come through the door because they're not necessarily, we, we wouldn't read their bodies that way. right? And so uh, it's very much in the eye of the beholder. Um, I think that BMI cutoffs are not terribly useful. I think that they actually do a lot of damage and they're rooted in eugenic logics. So I do not use the words obesity and overweight, or if I use them, I use them with big scare quotes uh, because I think that they try to constrain human difference and suggest that there's sort of something magical that happens at these specific moments that I don't think that's actually borne out by any kind of rigorous data. So fat... Uh, gives us a lot of room to talk about a scope of human experience that I think many of us are in relationship to. When I teach fat class or when I give talks, I'm amazed by the number of people who identify themselves as having a relationship with fat, are either trying to avoid fat, sidestep fat, that they're constantly thinking about the presence of fat in their lives, whether or not it's marked on their body. And that's before we get to talking about people who are bigger than um, the prototypical citizen, which is not actually bigger than average, but bigger than an airplane seat, bigger than a spot on the subway, bigger than, you know, anything that we, you know, clothing sizes in average stores. Uh, that's not necessarily, has nothing to do with the average population size. It does have to do with what we perceive as an idealized citizen. And I would argue that many, if not most of us, are outside of that framework when it comes to bodies. So I think there's a lot of different ways that we can use this language in terms of how we circumscribe bodies. But what I'm finding is that because we all do live in bodies, um, it's something that seems to govern a lot more of our thinking than I think I ever thought it did. I thought only fat people think about fat. And what I've come to understand the more that I talk about this, the more that I do this work, is that everybody is in some kind of relationship with fat. Um, and it takes up an astonishing amount of our time and thought. And on my bad days, when I'm feeling a bit conspiracy-minded, I do think that that's meant to distract us from the real work of aiming toward justice that we could perhaps be doing if we weren't so worried about whether to get the salad or the fries. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good way to put it. I'm just going to sit with that for a second. As someone who sort of hedges with half and half, that's my strategy now, like... But but it's it's fascinating because it's something that, as you said, that really resonated with me that I had just never thought of. You know, when when someone says something and it then becomes so patently obvious, but you've never thought about it before like that. And you were just sort of talking about uh, seat sizes on airplanes, seat sizes on the subway. 
So these things must pattern our conception of what a body is and quote unquote ought to look like, right? Like the built environment around us, that's a decision by a bureaucrat or a decision by a corporation that's seeking to maximize space or maximize returns, shapes our perception of what is the case, or at least ought to be the case, right? And I think of the same thing in terms of when you said, you know, you don't use the words obesity or overweight, because they're also rooted in assumptions and and normative uh, beliefs that that are contestable, right? Because so all this is contestable, but shapes our conception of, of what a proper body is then, right? Absolutely. As it does around race, as it does around ability. You know, we have a, a normative ideal in lots of different parts of our public spaces, our public um, understandings of how we hold space together. And I think we're coming to understand that around do I mean what I'm about to say? I, I think we're coming to understand that around some aspects of identity. Sure. But I think that there's so much shame around size that a fat body is still a failed body. So if the space does not meet you, you're the problem. And I do think that that might be different around other aspects of understanding. Now, that said, I think this push toward self-regulation and moral panic, this is just variations on a theme. I think we used to hold people accountable for poverty, for example. And I think we still do in a lot of ways in the way that we understand social policy, for sure. But I think that there is uh, maybe a gentling of that message in some respects, where I think I often think that health has now replaced wealth, that we are meant to be chasing health at all times. And I think that's actually the root of all of this, is that we're meant to pursue healthy living. Fatness is seen as oppositional to healthy living. But I think that the whole thing falls apart when you consider whether health that should be the thing that we're chasing in the in the first place and who that throws under the bus. It doesn't just throw fat people under the bus, but people with chronic health conditions. All of us as we like, I mean, we're all gonna die. And there's this presumption that we can cheat death, that we can avoid death if we somehow do enough that is doesn't really make any sense. How much of this has to do with the the market. I, I want to get into every time you say something, I have there are ten more questions that pop into my head, which is a great sign, but a real podcast challenge. Uh, how much of this has to do with the market? That there are idealized types of bodies that are sold to us, that are marketed to us, that executives, typically men, uh, believe are uh, cash uh, drivers, uh, industry cash drivers. How much it is, well, we have to build this standard seat and we, you know, if, if they're bigger, then we have fewer of them, which means we make less money. Uh, th- there's a cultural element to it, but it seems like there's an economic element to it as, as well. How much of it is, is, is about the market and maximizing returns? Oh, a huge amount. And this is where I really start to sound like a conspiracy theorist. But if you look at the shift in rhetoric around the obesity epidemic, there hasn't been, there's been a small change in uh average size across the population in the last 30 years. But what there has been a massive influx of is use of the phrase obesity epidemic that was barely used uh, in the 80s and then just surged. So this presumption of a massive health crisis is actually what has grown much more than than population, you know, bodies. Um, And some of that is because the studies that initially used that language of obesity epidemic of, you know, massive health, public health risk were funded by diet industry. And that's right. public record, right? It, it sounds, you know, when I say that, it sounds so absurd because we've come to understand this is such a taken for granted knowledge 
But I often say to my students, like lots of other things were taken for granted, that queer people were deviant, that some races were inferior to others. Like those things have been, quote unquote, proven by science and, you know, debunked, like strenuously debunked. And so perhaps we could operate with a degree of skepticism about why we find what we find. So all of that, funded by the diet industry, funded by the beauty industry, it functions, you know, these are these are multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industries. But they also, I would argue, are a backlash to feminism, that if we're satisfied with how we look, we're considering that there might be a range of aesthetic possibilities that we have to find a new angle. And the new angle is, well, you know, it's fine that you love your fat body, but it's going to kill you. Right. Canadian context, in the context of socialized me medicine, it's not only going to kill you, it's going to kill you and it's going to be expensive as it does so. And how, you know, why should we have to fund your lack of uh, self-regulation? Yeah, whenever I hear that, I like to say to someone, okay, fine then, but uh, that you don't get to drive a car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't get I to... Know all these, yeah. <laughs> if, if we're going to think that way. Their knees replaced. Like, yeah, exactly. Nobody is worried about the runners, I'm just saying. Yeah, you don't get... Right, you don't get to run. You don't get to play sports because you're going to break a bone. God God knows it's going to happen. Oh, yeah. and you don't get to age. Right. right. I mean, it's a, it's a, it really very quickly becomes a eugenicist frame hidden behind an economic concern, right? Yeah. Well, and it's the two have a very good handshake. If we think about the history of eugenics and the history of capitalism, they're good buddies, right? They, they work in aid of one another extremely skillfully. So I don't know why we would be surprised that that's what we've continued going forward. And to be clear, in the intersections, this is most obvious. The obesity epidemic affects everybody's lives, but it is deployed against communities of color, against indigenous people, against poor people, against disabled people the most often. And so it's also not neutral. It's in hand in hand with other eugenicist logics. And, and what about cultural representations and as cultural representations? So if, if we just for a moment bracket the, the market imperative and, and look at the representations themselves, um, how do cultural representations of fatness, especially in pop culture, shape how we think about it? Does it set a kind of a platonic ideal type, and and then everything gets measured against that? Or how, how does that operate? For me, the answer is found in the fact that five-year-olds are on diets. And... Right? That little kids, uh, they're really problematic studies, but little kids would pick fat kids after kids with other visible differences, you know, to be friends with. That at a really, really young age, kids understand that to be fat is to be bad. And that's because all of the media that we offer them, including like, you know, the fat chipmunk or the lazy turtle or whatever, like all of it, even when it's not in human form, frames fat as lazy, as amoral, as gluttonous, as unself-regulated, like, you know, always back to the same theme. And that only continues. Asexual or hypersexual often based on race. So not always, um, but, you know, fat black women in media are often presented as hypersexual. Um, you know, it's it's such an easy punchline. When you start looking for it, every bit of media, like the fat girl who shows up on a date, on a blind date, you know, cue laugh track that he would ever mm. find her attractive. Right? And so I think uh, it's so ubiquitous that we don't even notice that we've consumed it at this point. And that makes it very hard to unthink. And because it's rooted in shame, uh, shame lets terrible things flourish, I would argue. 
And this is back to what I was saying about social media. That's why we need spaces where people can connect and cast light on this. So it doesn't just live in sort of the most ashamed parts of ourselves where we beat ourselves up rather than considering that the system that has made us feel terrible is the problem. And what are the, again, when you were speaking, I was thinking about how, when you said, you know, how, how could this person, uh, you know, find the, the fat blind date attractive? And I was thinking, you know, what if they did, but felt like they couldn't admit it because they're socially patterned to deny that in the same way that, you know, it's difficult for folks in many context to explore their queerness because they're told that that's not okay. That's not normal. And, and so they become, I mean, I, I think particularly men this, uh, who are facing the sort of, um, the, the stereotypical idea of, of masculinity who, who can't explore that stuff are then themselves damaged by these cultural limits that are placed on them by a, a society that doesn't want them to deviate from, from the norms that they've set. Right. So it, it, it seems to do damage across individuals, right? Yeah. Well, it's seen as a fetish. It's seen as an aberrant sexual desire, um, you know, and so automatically it's framed as something that only happens on the edges of society. But as much as I am skeptical about BMI, and I think it's not a useful way of organizing the population, if I do take BMI for a moment, two-thirds of the population in Canada is either obese or overweight at this point. So there's a whole lot of fat people walking right. around and we are, you know, finding love and reproducing. And so right. the story that we tell about our bodies has nothing to do with its lived reality. Right. What about, I, I want to try to understand how we got to this moment and how it might differ from, from different moments or places. So let's start with place. I mean, how, how is fatness perceived and, and lived across borders and cultures? I mean, do we look at fatness differently in North America than, than elsewhere? Yeah. So over time and over space, body logics, you know, governing aesthetics have been variable. They continue to be variable. So something I hear a lot is that this is really a white girl problem. This is not something that affects communities of color in quite the same way. And then, of course, that's immediately uh, refuted by the people who come up to me when I when I give these talks and say, you know, like, this is part of my life. This is part of my community. It gets framed differently. And sometimes the specific aesthetic that is perceived as desirable or acceptable is variable based on community standards. Right. But there still is an ideal that we're chasing. And increasingly, as that ideal gets framed less by aesthetics and more by health. I would argue that it has more of a kind of colonial grip. And so, you know, communities that previously would have seen being thick as really attractive, they're still getting stared down by their doctors around concerns around diabetes. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? And so it, 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 there's a way that it is a shapeshifter. The whole moral panic can, can find its way through to adhere to any, any space that might try to refute it. Right. So, I mean, what about internationally? I mean, are there examples of, of states where fatness is perceived differently? And, and if so, you know, what's, what's that a function of? Yeah. I, again, I think that it is variable. I think that if throughout human history, in conditions of scarcity until really very, very recently, 
bigger bodies were revered as bodies that were successful because so much of this is bound up in wealth. Right now, the conditions that you need to have uh, a normative body require access to enormous resources, time, money, space. You know, a, a lot of things have to happen if you are not the rare person who happens to be metabo metabolically, you know, sent in the direction of thinness, right? Which is for most people not going to be true for their entire life, even if it was true at some point. So yes, there are still jurisdictions where that logic of scarcity still skews toward a bigger body being revered. But there's a too big everywhere, at least everywhere that I've found. And in the same way that you can buy, you know, Coca-Cola in every jurisdiction on the on on the planet, you can buy Diet Coke in every jurisdiction on the planet right. because, you know, we've very successfully imported our logics around health and wellness. Um, and so even if, again, there are variable beauty standards, there's a real sense that science transcends culture and that science is right when it comes to how to achieve health. I want to get into the the science and, and health angle, the medicalization of this, the sort of pathological medicalization of it in a moment, but but very quickly, I want to go back to something you had said earlier. Where when you look around, there are examples of of uh, making jokes and taking shots at fatness across uh, across our, our cultural consumption, which I, I think I think is is obvious to anyone who's paid any attention at all, and, and it persists, which I find remarkable because these days you're hard pressed to get away with a lot of of jokes uh, at the expense of different communities. It's, it's you, you know, it's, you don't see LGBTQ plus, the 2S plus jokes in, in cultural spaces like you did in, in even a decade ago. You go back and watch Friends or How I Met Your Mother, which are persisting cultural phenomena. And even 10 years out, they're just remarkably homophobic and sexist right. and misogynist and so on. And you would never get away with that now, but but that doesn't seem to be true of making jokes at the expense of, of fatness. That seems to be still be in bounds. Why is that? Because it's your fault. Well, yeah. Right. So I can't change my race. I can't change my sexual orientation. We've come to believe that in a way that I don't know that thirty years ago we believed. Right. Right. But I think this is perceived as something that is within our capacity to change, and so. If I, you know, if I'm experiencing racism, I'm a victim. But if I'm experiencing fat phobia, I'm a chump. Except for fat is just as immutable as any other identity category. Diets don't work. Our bodies don't change. They hold where they want to hold. Or if they do change, they change because we're doing things that could never be characterized as in aid of health. Yeah, you mentioned Diet Coke earlier. Not the healthiest thing to consume. Uh, we know that diets aren't particularly healthy as well, yet... It's funny is that the judgment hasn't shifted, the sort of medical-based judgment doesn't seem to have shifted. We don't go around judging people like, oh, my God, you're drinking a Diet Coke. Oh, my God, you're on a diet. Uh, oh, my God, you've gone keto. We need to sit and, sit and, and judge you as aberrant, right? Like that, I that, that, love, same love Diet Coke, so I can't hear you speak against it. But No, sure. I'm more of a Coke <laughs> Zero drinker. If you want, we can do the sharks and the jets here. But they're both. Yeah, they're both. They're both, you know, I don't I don't think that it's good. I just yeah, think right. it's tasty. So having said all that, um, yeah, like we believe that diets will work. We believe that all sorts of very strange behaviors 
that we're presumably doing in aid of help. It, it's very strange. Like again, it does not it does not withstand scrutiny because those behaviors don't really lead to our wellness. And I would argue that a life spent obsessively self-regulating is not a life that feels like a well life, right? And I don't say that. I say that with a lot of compassion and a lot of love because all of us are locked in that battle. So I don't say that, you know, to add shame on top of shame, that now we need to feel ashamed for the things we're doing to avoid shame. That's not my mandate here. I don't think that's a useful place to begin. And again, we all live in this world, this fat-hating world. So I don't know a fat activist alive who doesn't still sometimes feel like shit about their body. Right. Because we live here, right? And so, fine. But ideally, I would say that, you know, loving yourself, eating intuitively, you know, being in relation with your body and your community is more of a path toward wellness. And that many of the things that we do to outthink death to, you know, move toward health. They're not really uh, enhancing a livable life. Yeah. I I think about, I think about this often is, is, well, we spent eight hours a day of our lives asleep. So we spent roughly a third of our lives asleep and probably like a third of our lives trying to self-police because we've been told not to be okay with who we are, right? It's, it's like a lot of time that we spent Either, you know, unconscious or judging ourselves, which doesn't seem like a good bargain if we're only left with a third of the day, you know? Well, and if we wanted to make communities healthier, if we wanted to make populations healthier, we know, based on the social determinants of health, all the things that we could do if we increased vacation days, if we absolutely beefed up our welfare state, right? So we're spending so much money on obesity prevention, which has not resulted in the prevention of any obesity, just to be clear. It's a completely losing strategy. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a losing strategy because people, you know, have so, no self-control or not. We have poured billions, trillions of dollars into eradicating a population and it doesn't work. What would happen if we put that into poverty prevention? What would happen if we put that into education? What would happen if we put that into all these other places that we know actually unambiguously change the health outcomes of a population? But we don't actually care about health. Yeah. We care about making people realize that they should be working harder and being more stressed and, you know, be at war with themselves. And again, some part of me feels that's so that we're distracted for asking from asking for what we deserve. If, if we cared about health, we wouldn't have 40-hour work weeks and poor vacation and no pensions and bad health insurance, and right? Like, you know, I, I think one of the, the greatest ways to sort of zero in on what people really care about is what are you willing to spend your money on, your revealed preferences, right? Or what what do you think the state ought to spend its money on? And I think the people that, that quote unquote, care about these things wouldn't spend the money in ways that would improve people's health, right? They're like, no, give it back to me. They say that yeah, they will right. all the money that we put into obesity prevention. Yeah. There's a lot of money there. There's some very deliberate ideological choices being made about what we prioritize. And what we prioritize is like fat people make us feel bad. They're gross. Let's get rid of them. Let's at least try to get rid of them. Not let's make our population healthy. But if we can dress it up as, you know, just concern for your health, then somehow we can avoid pointing out exactly how hostile and eugenicist it is. What about now? I want to close in on the medicalization and then I want to close out on, on how we shift perceptions. But first I wanted to get deep into this, uh, this sort of the veil of medicalization. So, well, this is about health and this is about science and this is about doctors wanting 
what's best for people. And I think for many people, that's sort of a common sense, intuitive take. And, and I can see why that is. Um, but what's, what's the counterpoint to that? Well, first of all, I think that there's a lot of dispute on how unhealthy fatness is when you correct for other variables. Um, and I can, I can give you citations for that because I know people listening are probably not going to buy it. But the second thing is, even if we do see differential health outcomes, there are a lot of reasons why that might be the case. We know that stigma causes poorer health outcomes. We know that across a lot of different identity categories. So if we consider that fat people are surveilled and just reviled in public space, it's impossible not to consider the impact that that has on a body. Fat people do not want to go to the doctor where every single thing from an ingrown toenail to, you know, retinal detachment is blamed on your weight. And so we go to the doctor less frequently. Going to the doctor less frequently may be correlated with poor health outcomes. Things don't come in our sizes, not just airplane seats. When you show up and the blood pressure cuff can't accurately measure your blood pressure or, you know, the table can't hold your body or doctors are never taught how to palpate a body of your size with your shape. Well, guess what? That's not good healthcare. And so I think that if we adjusted for all those variables, if we fixed all of those problems and we still saw droves of fat people dying, which, by the way, we don't see anyway, then I might be willing to listen. But I think it's really uh, it does not withstand scrutiny. It does not, you know, it, we should be cultivating a great deal of suspicion. And, and on top of it. In in what world does anyone think that judgment and surveillance is the way to produce better outcomes? I mean, even even if the health concerns were true, uh, in in what world is there any evidence as well? Uh, the way to do it is to berate someone and to judge them and to surveil them because that's how you get better outcomes, right? <laughs> it's like it's just you know, particularly if we don't believe that fat is a choice. Look, if fat people had become thin people, there would be no fat people. All of us have faced major consequences for being fat. There isn't a fat person on this planet, I would argue, who hasn't been on a diet at some point. So if there were pathways to thinness, people would have achieved them by now. And so mm. if we believe that fat is immutable, if we believe that fat is not a choice, then we deserve the same care and regard that any other human body might have. If you show up and you have scoliosis, then you want a doctor who knows how to, you know, help you with your spine. If you show up and you have any other chronic health condition or physical vari variability, right, that if you're really tall and you need a longer table or whatever oh is going on, bodies come in such an array of shapes, sizes, abilities, configurations. And for whatever reason, you know, we fail to meet all of those variabilities, but we don't necessarily shame and blame all of those variabilities equally. I, I was thinking uh, this. This always happens to me. Is, is and like, I hear, here's how I I want to take the conversation. Then you, someone says something. There's five thousand different avenues I want to go and trot. But what about I, I, again? I want to close out on shifting perceptions in a moment. But but to get into that first, what about um, exceptions to the rule in our own culture, where fatness is um, venerated or or uh, accepted as an exception to the rule. I'm thinking, for instance, of certain celebrities or certain athletes, for instance, when you're looking at a, a lineman in a football game and the guy's 300 pounds 
and, you know, 6'3", uh, the response to that is, hell yeah, <laughs> right? He's ours, and we want him to go and crush the 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 uh, the other linemen. But the, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a state of exception, right? Yeah, they're vanishingly rare those places, and they still come with a great deal of scrutiny, particularly for female identified bodies. So I, I think about all of the shit that's been lobbed at Lizzo, mm-hmm. just for having a body that lives in space and for making sartorial choices that are no. Uh, more revealing than the majority of people who are, you know, within the musical public sphere. But the amount of just vitriol and hatred that is lobbed at her is outrageous. And it's both because she's fat and black, but also because she is not ashamed. And that's the chief sin. Like, if she was at least apologetic like Oprah, we'd have some room for her. You know, don't be Lizzo, be Oprah, be spent. 50 years, like, I mean, if something, I can't remember where I read it. If Oprah can't lose weight, like, what hope is there for everybody yes. else? Like, we think weight loss is possible, but the person with the most resources on earth can't achieve it. Well, could we maybe, like, reconsider that position a little mm-hmm. bit? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there are the odd places um, where there is an acceptance for body variability. But I think they're still pretty rare. And I think that you still have to perform health. So I think there's a particular reason also that we're willing to consider it in places that have to do with sports because our, we can say, well, you know, obviously that guy must be healthy though. Right. So, yeah, right. So they get us, they, they get a pass. All right. Uh, well, then how do we shift perceptions? I want to close out on this. Uh, obviously it, it's going to take a re-patterning culturally and, and politically. What, what does that work look like? I mean, it's deep and it's heavy and it's it's a lifetime's work. It's many generations work. But as you said, in other areas of identity, we have made strides that we could never have considered. You know, certainly for me in my lifetime, I would never have considered that we would see some of the strides that we've made. And equally, as you said, we've seen a horrible backlash. So trans visibility has never been more prevalent. You know, there were no you know, visible trans people in media, you know, 50 years ago, let's say. But there were also no anti-trans laws on the books. So that visibility comes with backlash. I think that this is going to be many, many years and generations of work. But I do feel like there could be hope to at least start to provide space for people to speak back. I see how empowered people feel when they hear that there could be another narrative, when they're here, that there could be another story, that it isn't actually their responsibility to hate themselves as a part of the human condition. Like that isn't part of the social contract that you must show up and hate yourself as soon as you achieve language. And so I think we parent differently. I think we teach differently. I think we shift curricula. I think, you know, we just keep having this conversation, water on a stone, until things change. Unfortunately, I also think then we'll just find a new scapegoat. So, yeah, so right. I, I think, you know, we'll be having these conversations. I don't think you and I are ever going to run out of things to talk about. But I do hope that we're uh, at the front of a change in attitude. And the, and the media has got to be a big part of that, right? I think of, about the work we do in media and our coverage of this. And I, I, even this episode of this podcast is going to be an outlier in the space. Like, I, uh, there aren't a ton of of podcasts and articles, et cetera, et cetera, covering this from this angle, right? 
uh, th there's got to be more of this, right? I hope so. Um, one of the things I hope to accomplish at some point in the next, you know, 20 years is a fat studies minor at my university because uh, the fat studies class that I teach is always, you know, fully enrolled. And I think there is a, a huge appetite to talk about this. Um, and I, so I hope that that starts to shift things. I've been asked to talk about this more in the last two or three years than I had, you know, in the 10 years prior. Um, so I think that hopefully less of an outlier than it used to be. I think that when I started by saying, you know, I'm thinking about weight stigma and fat people, there was a real eye roll, both from the right and the left, from the left as though we're sidestepping real issues that are real problems, like, you know, it's just super indulgent to talk about this, and from the right in the obvious ways that, you know, obviously you don't realize that, you sound like an anti-vaxxer, right? Like, obviously right. you don't realize that health is important. And I think that there has been an infinitesimal shift toward this being something that has a little bit more uptake. So, so yeah, we just keep talking. Well, that's a, a, a fantastic, if ironic note on which to end, uh, <laughs> to have to end this conversation, even though uh, I could talk about this all day long. I have so many more questions and I, I suspect our listeners do too, but I also su suspect that a lot of people were very, very glad to hear this and that we probably shifted some thinking. So thank you so much for joining me here today. I appreciate it so much. Totally a pleasure. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jar, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. And to you for listening, we'll see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>